Coming up on this episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. 90% of Americans with prediabetes are not diagnosed by their doctor. Right. That's terrifying, especially because it's a 100% reversible, preventable, treatable condition. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Mark. You probably figured out by now that I'm super passionate about getting regular, deep, restful sleep. It's a foundational piece for optimizing metabolism, brain function, and pretty much our health as a whole. One hack that has made such a huge difference in my own sleep was keeping my bed nice and cool. And that's one of the reasons I love the Pro Pod cover from 8 Sleep. For me, the most common reason for waking up in the middle of the night is getting too hot. Even with the AC crank, sometimes my bed just gets really warm from my own body heat, making it impossible to sleep well. But ever since trying the Pod Pro, I haven't noticed that problem, and I sleep soundly all night long and wake up feeling rested and energized. Eight Sleep's Pod Pro cover can go on your existing mattress. It pairs dynamic heating and cooling thermoregulation with biometric tracking. So it's actually adjusts to my needs throughout the night and gives me an interesting set of data to learn from the next day, like a sleep score and a heart rate variability. I love that the Pod Pro syncs with my Aura Ring so I can get all my biometric data in one place to really understand my body's patterns day and night without having to do anything extra. If you use a Woo Band, they're also compatible with the Pod Pro. Eight Sleep helps me feel restored and rested, and I wake up feeling a better version of myself, which is good, right? <laughs> and if you're in the market for an entirely new mattress, Eight Sleep's Pod Pro mattress provides all these same features in a supportive bed. Whether you sleep hot or cold, Pod Pro is so smart, it will actually account for your unique needs to keep your bed just the right temperature, just like Goldilocks. Eight Sleep has even found their products help people fall asleep 32% faster and reduce wakings by 40%. None of us can afford to lose out on high quality sleep. If you're ready to take your nights to the next level, check out 8sleep.com forward slash mark. You can save $150 at checkout. That's 8sleep, E-I-G-H-T-S-L-E-E-P.com slash mark, and you can get $150 off. 8sleep currently ships within the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., People are always surprised when I tell them that even with a whole foods diet rich in plants, we can still be nutrient deficient. And addressing nutrient deficiencies is one of the lowest hanging fruits for optimizing our health and feeling better at any age. And that is why I'm a huge fan of AG1 from Athletic Greens. Now, since our soils no longer have the same levels of essential nutrients or not enough of the microbiome in the soil because we've killed it with glyphosate and other stuff and then they can't extract the nutrients, we're up against issues like chronic stress, toxicity, sleep deprivation like never before, our bodies actually need some extra help getting all the right information to work properly. And that information comes in the form of vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, and good bacteria, all of which help our cells remember how to efficiently tackle their important jobs. Now, one of the things I use every day to support my diet is AG1 from Athletic Greens. It's a comprehensive superfood powder with a special blend of high-quality whole food ingredients that work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. It's specifically designed to support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system, which we all need. I've made AG1 part of my daily ritual because I feel better knowing I have a little extra nutritional insurance to complement my healthy diet. It also gives me a nice energy boost without feeling overstimulated. I like to think of it as a huge leafy green salad shrunk down into a simple glass of water that I can take anywhere. Right now, you can get 10 free travel packs of AG1 when you make your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Hyman. That's A-T-H-L-E-T-I-C-G-R-E-E-N-S dot com slash Hyman. Now let's get back to this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Hi, this is Lauren Fian, one of the producers of The Doctor's Pharmacy podcast. 
Dysfunction in our metabolic health paves the road for chronic disease, and it deserves more time and attention than it often receives. Metabolic dysfunction is an umbrella term that includes several conditions you might be familiar with, including insulin resistance, high triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol, obesity, high blood pressure, and more. In today's episode, we feature clips from four different episodes of The Doctor's Pharmacy about why metabolic health is so important. Dr. Hyman talks to Dr. Cindy Geyer about what to look for when measuring metabolic health, and Dr. Ben Bickman about changing our metabolic health. He also discusses the importance of metabolic flexibility with Mark Sisson and cholesterol markers to be aware of with Dr. Elizabeth Boehm. Let's jump in. A recent study was looking at the NAHANES data from 2009 to 2016. It's a government survey. Government survey. All of our blood tests and health records and everything, right? And trying to say, well, how many people are what we would call metabolically healthy? And if you're not familiar with it, for people who may not be familiar with that term, it's sort of meeting the optimal numbers for a blood pressure less than 120 over 80, um, HDL levels being in the high range, a good range, uh, greater than 40 for men and 50 for women. Um, having triglycerides that are low, um, having a glucose that's less than 100. And they found that 12.12% of Americans... 12.2%. 12.2%, thank you. 12.2% of Americans were metabolically healthy. Which kind of means that almost 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. And since 75% of people are overweight, there's another 13% there Yes. It's like, what are the, what's, what's going on with the skinny people? <laughs> well, and that's the interesting piece. Fewer than one-third of so-called normal weight people were metabolically healthy. So that's another really important oh, message. Wait, 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 wait. Did you just say that two-thirds of skinny people are metabolically unhealthy? Yes. And have prediabetes-like syndrome? Yes. Two-thirds. That's mind-boggling wow. to me. Okay, so that, that means that what, like... 95% of Americans are, are, are <laughs> metabolic. Like, no, no, no. It's oh, still the 88%. Oh, the 88% all right, right, but then we're the actual, looking at how strongly right, right. it correlated oh with weight. That's and so terrible. So just having a body mass index that's less than 25 is not a guarantee that you're metabolically healthy. So if you're a skinny sugar and bagel eater, don't think it's fine because you're skinny. Exactly. Is basically the bottom line. Exactly. <laughs> because foods have other impacts besides just what they do with cholesterol anyway. Foods directly impact the elasticity of the arteries, for example, which is another key player. You mean food is more than calories, Cindy? <laughs> food is information, Mark. There you you said go. that for years. It talks to our genes. It talks to our systems. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So you're talking about how the food impacts our metabolic health. And, and, and we're not really good at diagnosing metabolic dysfunction. Right. I mean, 90%, I mean, Okay, one out of two Americans has prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. And if you look at this new study, I would argue that 9 out of 10 Americans have some degree mm-hmm. of prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, mm-hmm. like 90% of Americans. So when you look at that data and you also look at the parallel data that 90% of Americans with prediabetes are not diagnosed by their doctor, right? that's terrifying, especially because it's a 100% reversible, preventable, treatable condition. And it gets worse and worse over time, and people just don't even know they have it, and doctors miss it because there's no pill to take. Oh, tech metformin. Well, that's not going to help, right? It's like, and and so, um, what are the kinds of ways that we look at these patients differently? What are the tests that we do? What are the things that we really focus on when someone comes in with a risk of heart disease or they're concerned about heart mm-hmm. disease? You know, what's our what's our approach? It's not just looking at the typical cholesterol and even CRP. 
Yeah. So we would look at those, of course. We would also want to know what is somebody's insulin. Most doctors measure glucose, but not insulin. Mm -hmm. I personally like to look at somebody's glucose trends over time. Because if you think about something that's preventable, you don't want to wait till they cross that threshold to prediabetes or diabetes. So even in the range of so-called normal glucose mark, um, you know this, somebody who's fasting glucose runs less than 85 is in a very different metabolic place than somebody who's fasting glucose is 95 to 99, even though they're both technically normal, that it's a spectrum of risk. And the farther along you mark that spectrum, the higher the risk of heart disease and diabetes. So if somebody's glucose used to be 85 and then it was 91 and now it's 98, yeah. we're going to talk to that person right off the bat about all the things they need to put into place to prevent it from progressing because they're already on that spectrum. So we also want to know insulin levels, not just a fasting insulin, but sometimes the insulin response to food. Because the other thing that's emerged is insulin is a player. And way before somebody's blood glucose goes up, they might be pumping out tons of insulin to try to keep it in a good mm -hmm, place. Mm -hmm. And insulin by itself mm -hmm. contributes to inflammation and more weight gain around the middle, the, the middle that visceral adipose yeah. tissue. So yeah. we want to know their insulin both fasting and in response to a challenge. So wait, wait, wait. Are you saying that sugar, not fat, that's causing heart disease? <laughs> and sugar, the, the thing that's driving the insulin? Because fat doesn't cause insulin spikes. Well, there is some... To, I mean, fat is a player. Fat by itself. Fat like by you, itself is a player, If you player, eat right? fat with other food, it will. But yeah. 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 And I would, say, I would say that quality of fat does matter. And yeah. we can talk some more about that, but I think fat yeah. plays a role with artery elasticity, which is another component yeah. of vascular risk. Yeah, so fried foods, trans fats, right. refined oils, those are nasty. And Absolutely. They, they Absolutely. And, but but fat itself, if it's made from whole food sources and nuts and seeds and avocados and Might olive actually oil, be beneficial. Actually beneficial, yeah. yeah. So what you're talking about is is a set of diagnostic tests that are, are so important but mostly ignored. So the the, the particle size and number, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. well, nobody's doing. And the second is not just measuring your blood sugar A1C, which may be perfect. Mm -hmm. And you may be in really bad trouble, but measuring also insulin in response mm -hmm. to drinking like a couple of Cokes, right? <laughs> I I have a patient, Cindy, that I remember who was at super high risk for heart disease. And she had, uh, I mean, she looked like the Tasmanian devil. I mean, she was just like a round apple ball like this. And her belly was just like this big thing. And I'm like, this woman is in big trouble. And she's inflamed. She's at high risk of heart disease, mm -hmm. high blood pressure diabetes and i'm like let's check her glucose tolerance test with insulin and this is you know this is like 20 plus years ago and no, no one was like looking at this even today no one's looking at this it's like right. so, so hard i mean it, it took 50 years from the time the guy said hey we should wash our hands before surgery for us to wash our hands you know mckinley died president mckinley because he got shot in the belly and the doctor mcburney stuck his finger in the wound to check it out <laughs> without washing his hands you know so that's like crazy it took 50 years from the time the guy said, let's do a stethoscope so we don't get lice jumping into the doctor's hair <laughs> to start using the stethoscope because the doctor used to put their head on the patient. So it takes forever. And we've been doing this. So anyway, this woman, I did this test. I gave her this drink. And it was the most shocking thing I'd ever seen. Uh, and it taught me so much about what we miss in medicine. Her blood sugar was perfect, like 80. like And, and she took the sugar drink and it was like, perfect like mm -hmm. like it never went over 110 after taking like the equivalent of two coca-colas oh she's fine her a1c was perfect her insulin normally should be under five fasting and under like 25 or 30 after a drink 
her insulin was like 50 fasting and like 250 after a drink. So her body was just pumping out insulin, which was making her hungry, Mm -hmm. slowing her tablets, putting fat in her belly cells, Mm -hmm. which were basically inflammation factories Mm -hmm. and leading this perpetual cycle and she was able to lose 50 pounds like that when we cut out starch wow. and sugar uh, and i just feel like you know that that showed me so much because you can even do a normal glucose tolerance test if and you're not that measuring looks perfect and if you were super hyperinsulinemic you're gonna you're gonna miss that patient's real problem and you know it's interesting mark because that scenario is also associated with that cholesterol profile we talked yes. about with the small dense LDL and, yes. and and low HDL and the sequelae that we usually link to diabetes, fatty liver, peripheral neuropathy, all these other organs that are affected, and it can happen with the high insulins alone before the sugars go up. Yeah, it's a metabolic imbalance. Yeah, so that's really the take home here is that in heart disease is really a hormonal issue around insulin mm. and insulin resistance mm. and an inflammation issue, and unless you address those two things. Not with aspirin and statins, mm-hmm. which will work to some degree, mm-hmm. or metformin, which will work to some mm-hmm. degree. But, and by the way, high blood pressure, which just goes along with all this stuff, they're mm-hmm. all seen as separate. High blood pressure, cholesterol, mm-hmm. diabetes, they're seen as separate. They're the same condition. They're, they're manifestations of the same mm-hmm. underlying biology of insulin resistance. And unless you really know how to look at the met- metabolic pathways in the right way, like we talked about insulin testing or the cholesterol or the inflammation or the cause of inflammation, because it, it may, you know, like you said, insulin and, and resistance is the, probably the biggest cause. So probably the biggest cause mm-hmm. of inflammation is diabetes, prediabetes, and the starch and sugar mm-hmm. that we eat about, about a pound of each every day in America. That's the problem. Um, but but there are other factors that mm-hmm. also contribute that the people don't think so much about, especially right. cardiologists. So those are the big ones. And of course, you know, exercise, sleep, stress, mm-hmm. all those. We, we, we're not, we've covered those on the podcast. Relationships, connection, community, really important. But there's some other factors that are a little unusual that we look at in functional medicine that I'd love to love to dive into that that have a big impact. Um, so can you just share some of the other factors that could drive inflammation? Well, yet another uh, example where the gut microbiome seems yeah. to play a role. So now that we can do more sophisticated gut testing and look at these microbial patterns, mm. um, there's a so-called microbial signature that strongly predicts insulin resistance, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. And a couple of general scenarios you see is there's a loss of overall microbial diversity in the gut. There's a loss of a couple of signature species. One's called, one of the phyla that produced this signaling molecule called butyrate. Butyrate plays a role as fuel for colon cells to help them replenish and be healthy. And it's also an anti-inflammatory molecule. And another species called Acromancia mucinophila. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of tell from the Latin mucin base that it's a mucus loving bacteria. Yeah. So that pattern of low diversity, loss of butyrate, and loss of acromancia correlates with loss of integrity of the gut lining, more absorption of unwanted things into the bloodstream, more calories, and more inflammation that in turn exacerbates insulin resistance. So the question is. Is it chicken or the egg? Because we know that pattern also shows up in response to diet, of course. The standard yeah. American diet yeah. creates yeah, I was gonna that ask, pattern, I was gonna right? ask you that, like, why do you don't have the good guys and why do you have too many bad guys? It's because of what we're eating. It's because of what we're eating. That microbiome is influenced by the foods that we feed it. Um, but what's really fascinating is even our thinking about how medications work. You mentioned metformin earlier, right? And we used to think that metformin 
helped our cells respond to insulin better, but it also has a microbiome effect. Interestingly enough, there was a study that found that people who took metformin, you saw a rebound of microbial diversity, um, a rebound of acromancia, and a rebound of those butyrate species. With metformin. With metformin, which I think is fascinating, right? Yeah. The way we think drugs are working may Oops. actually be yeah. completely different. We call those side effects, but they're We not call those side effects, <laughs> right? But we also know in functional and integrative medicine that we can achieve the same thing when we encourage people to eat a diverse array of plant-based, colorful plant-based foods and foods that are really good for rebound of acromancia, like polyphenolic foods, berries, deeply pigmented berries and greens and garlic and onions and cranberries, right? So, of course, people want a pill, but there are other things that can potentially achieve the same thing. Interesting. Yeah, there's a, co- a new company that came out with an acromancia product. Yes. Called Pendulum. The Pendulum. Probiotic. And it's fascinating. They're not saying this is a probiotic that's healthy for your gut. That this is a tool to control your blood sugar. Isn't that funny? And and I think, you know, we don't even think about that, that, that a lot of insulin resistance can start in the gut. Mm-hmm. I, I, I shared the story recently on a podcast, but I'll share it again. I had this patient who was diabetic, very brittle diabetic. Uh, he was kind of a type 1E2E, but he wasn't on insulin, but he was just all over the place. Put him on a keto diet. Sugar's dramatically improved, mm-hmm. dramatically, but still not like going from like 250 to like, you know, 120, 130 better, but not like where I wanted him. Um, and then one day he called me up and said, you know, doc, my stomach's been bothering me. I got the worst gas and I just feel so bloated and uncomfortable. I said, well, we have to get to the bottom of it and maybe have bacterial overgrowth, maybe you have this, mm-hmm. maybe you have that. But like in the meantime, you're so miserable. Why don't you just try some charcoal tablets, see if it gives you some mm-hmm. relief of your symptoms. And he comes back and says, I don't know what happened, doc, but my sugars went to normal. Like I'm in the 80s now because I took charcoal. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is it. This is these toxic bacteria and they're producing toxic molecules. And charcoal is like a sponge for toxins. So when someone comes in the ER and they swallow a bottle of pills, we make them drink a bottle of charcoal and they have black teeth. You know? but, but it works to absorb all these other bacterial toxins. And I was like, wow. And so often the pathway to fixing heart disease might not be through the heart. It might be through the, might gut, be through the gut or other, other factors like toxins. We know the role, for example, of pollution and, and uh, the particulate matter in, in, you know, in, in a lot of urban areas. Yeah. A huge correlation with heart disease, right? I think part of that too is is if we look upstream, even before people form plaques, they can start to have problems with the elasticity of their small arteries. And in fact, that's a more typical pattern for how cardiovascular disease shows up in women, uh. that it's small arteries that have lost their elasticity as opposed mm-hmm. to big arteries full of plaque. And we can think of that artery, that endothelium, as the canary in the coal mine. And they did studies of measuring people's artery elasticity as they were jogging through urban environments with high air pollution counts. And you could see the arteries lose their elasticity in response to that. They've also oh, shown- Oh, so all my jogging and running outside in China and Beijing in the middle of winter when the skies were gray <laughs> probably wasn't a good idea. Probably wasn't a good idea. Um, you can even show that those arteries will spasm in, acutely in response to stress, in response to a Burger King meal. Um, so, but so, not McDonald's? Well, not. <laughs> let's say a burger and fries meal. <laughs> um, yeah. So if we understand what keeps that endothelium healthy, hmm. that can actually clue us into how we keep our ourselves cardiometabolically healthy. Yeah. 
It was interesting also, heavy metals have become an interesting mm. phenomenon. Uh, and uh, you know, many, there are many heavy metals exposed to lead, mercury, and arsenic, and so forth. Now, arsenic's been linked to diabetes and other things. But the lead story is so fascinating to me because from our perspective in functional medicine, it's relatively easy to diagnose and treat, but it's been mostly ignored. And if you look at like the American Journal of Cardiology, I mean, they, they put out major papers that show that, for example, if your lead level's over two, which is considered, quote, normal, mm -hmm. which is about 40% of the population has a lead level over two, mm -hmm. which is a lot, of people, a lot of people, that the risk of having a heart attack or stroke or dying was far greater than if your cholesterol was abnormal. Wow. And yet, what doctor's checking your lead levels right. or checking your body burden of lead or chelating you as a treatment for heart disease? And yet, you know, this, this, the, the, um, I think it was called the TAC trial, mm -hmm. which was a, a, a $30 million randomized controlled trial of chelation therapy using EDTA, which chelates lead, actually was effective in heart disease. And yet, it doesn't matter what the research shows because we don't have research evidence-based medicine. We have reimbursement-based medicine. We get paid for doing angioplasty is not chelation. So that's what keeps getting done, even though the data is, is there, which is kind of amazing. This is an NIH government study showing that it worked. And I was like, okay, well, this is very slow to pick up, but we see this. So I, 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 think, I think the take home here is if you have heart disease, don't just assume it's high blood pressure, smoking, mm -hmm. cholesterol, diabetes, it could be a lot of other factors. It could be your gut microbiome, it could mm -hmm. be nutritional deficiencies, it could be environmental toxins, mm -hmm. along with you know lack of stress, uh, lack of sleep and stress mm -hmm. and so forth. Yeah, um, and, and Mark, you, you know my passion about sleep. I would put a sleep study very high on the radar for anybody who's got cardiometabolic imbalances, because we know that two thirds of people who are cardiometabolically unhealthy actually have sleep apnea. And our perception of how sleep deprived we are doesn't always match the reality of what we find when we screen people. I had this guy, he was, I remember him, he was a lawyer, came to Canyon Ranch years ago, 50 plus pounds overweight, uh, desperate to get healthy, lose weight, trying to exercise, eat better, doing everything, nothing was working. So I'm like, tell me about your life. He says, well, I'm a lawyer, I work really hard, a lot of hours. Uh, and I and I work at a stand-up desk. I'm like, oh, that's great. I said, why do you work at a stand-up desk? This was like, you know, before people were working at stand-up desk. He said, well, if I sit down, I fall asleep. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you probably have sleep apnea. And we did a sleep study, and he had sleep apnea for sure. And uh, we got him on a CPAP machine. He lost 50 pounds and reversed his prediabetes, his cholesterol, obviously his weight, his blood pressure. And and most, you know, most don't, people don't realize that, that it, you know, it's a, it's a it's a bi-directional thing. So if you're yeah. overweight, it can cause sleep apnea. But if you have sleep apnea, it can cause you to gain weight. And it's very hard to lose weight. And he was able to lose 50 pounds just yeah. by getting on a sleep program with a sleep machine that helped him sleep. I was like, wow, this is interesting. I had many people like that. Yeah, so it's, you know, honestly, Cindy, I don't know about you, but like I've learned way more from my patients than I ever learned in medical school. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. And the challenge in you know, being a doctor is, you get trained in this paradigm and, and it's it, it's taught to as if this is a monolithic truth. Like like this is a table and that's all it is. And like there's no questioning that this is a table, right? But the truth is um, we we are just learning so much mm. about the body and, and all of our old ideas are sort of breaking apart. But but um, unfortunately people really aren't accessing them. And, and it's it's just breaks my heart to see how slow medicine is to adopt 
the emerging science that we're talking about, whether it's around checking for lead or insulin resistance. I mean, insulin resistance is not even like a controversial thing. Right. It's not like heavy metals or the microbiome, which seems weird. I mean, like insulin resistance is a well-described known phenomenon. It's just mm -hmm. doctors clinically are kind of clueless because the treatments are going to be primarily lifestyle interventions. There's no drug. Oh, your cholesterol is high, give you statin. You're insulin resistant. What do I do? Oh, we'll give you metformin. But that's not the answer. Hey everyone, it's Dr. Hyman. I'm all about using food first when it comes to nutrition, but there are certain nutrients I recommend everyone supplement with because it's simply impossible to get adequate amounts from your diet alone. One example is magnesium, which our soils, well, they're not too healthy, and because there's no organic matter, they can't extract the magnesium from the soil from industrial farming, which is a drag. And that leads to 50% less of these minerals in our food than there was 50 years ago. And then, of course, we're doing things that cause us to lose magnesium, like sugar, caffeine, fluoride, even stress, which, you know, none of us have, right? 80% <laughs> of Americans are actually deficient in magnesium. And that may mean insufficient, not necessarily true deficiency, but like just not enough to, for optimal functioning because magnesium is so important. And it's a huge problem for our health. Uh, considering the pandemic of stress along with the pandemic of COVID that we're facing, we should all really be conscious about our magnesium intake because it activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which keeps us calmer and more relaxed. Magnesium is crucial for more than 300 other chemical reactions in the body and impacts everything from metabolism to sleep to neurologic health, energy, pain, muscle function, and lots more. My favorite new magnesium is from a company called BioOptimizers. Their magnesium breakthrough formula contains seven different forms, all of which have different functions in the body. There is truly nothing like it on the market. I really noticed the difference when I started taking it, and I've tried a lot of different magnesium products out there. I also love that all their products are soy-free, gluten-free, lactose-free, non-GMO, free of chemicals, fillers, and made with natural ingredients. Plus, they give back to their community. For every 10 bottles sold, they donate one to someone in need, and there's a lot of those. Right now, you can try BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough for 10% off. Just go to magbreakthrough.com. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash Hyman and use the code Hyman10 and you'll get 10% off this really great formula. I think you're going to like it as much as I do. And now let's get back to this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Three quarters of the deaths globally, which is, you know, I think it's like 60, 70 million a year. I mean, are, are actually are, are caused by uh, some level of this poor metabolic health. And, and it's, yep. it's, it's driving, you know, of course, not just weight issues and diabetes, but cancer and dementia and depression and infertility and all these other phenomena. So yeah. your research is so important to help us kind of tease apart these mechanisms. Um, and, and the question I would have for you is, 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 you know, for people listening, how do we start to think about uh, changing because not everybody wants to go on a ketogenic diet, nor is it advisable or, mm -hmm. or is it a good, uh, even though, by the yeah. way, you mentioned Jocelyn, the way they treated type one diabetics was a 75% fat diet, 20% protein and 5% carbohydrates. And by the way, <laughs> it, it was kept alive, but it also, by the way, was the, the way that, uh, we discovered America was through borrowing the native Americans, superfood packet, which was called pemmican, which was made up oh, of yeah, yeah. basically rendered fat from bison, um, you know, <laughs> a few berries and the protein. And, and it, literally a man needed a pound a day and a woman needed a half a pound a day. And so if you had 30 pounds of this stuff in your backpack, you could 
basically eat for a month and survive. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, there's no question that uh, you and I, of course, are, are aligned when it comes to having a favorable view of fat. And, and Mark, with, I like what you were saying a moment ago, um, where, and you're being careful in your language, which, of course, as a scientist, I appreciate precision. Um, you and I, we're not claiming that insulin resistance is the cause of every disorder, but there's little doubt that it is a key contributor. It is causing many chronic disorders, and it's contributing to virtually every other one. Yes. So my, my view, one of the things I hope people take away from this discussion is I can imagine someone who's opening their medicine cabinet, not that either of us is giving any medical advice here, but they're looking at their medications and they see their medication for their diabetes or one or two or three medications for their diabetes. They may have a medication for their migraines, a medication for their fertility disorder and their blood pressure, little knowing that all of those have, do have a common connection with insulin resistance. And when it comes to controlling insulin resistance, you are absolutely right. There are multiple inputs into this. I consider uh, there are various ones and I, there, I've looked at them and consider kind of various levels of them. And to me, there are three primary causes of insulin resistance. And by primary, I mean that literally I can cause insulin resistance in isolated cells, in laboratory yeah. rodents, and in humans with all three of these. And that is elevated insulin itself, elevated stress hormones, and elevated inflammatory proteins or cytokines. All three of those things are considered primary in my definition because you can just make insulin resistance happen at the cell, in the rodents, and in humans, all three biomedical models. But in, as you were kind of alluding to, if we were to tell someone, all right, here, but there are others, like you said, like noxious toxins that can accumulate in fat cells and alter fat cell growth. Absolutely, that is relevant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, so I'm not suggesting that there aren't others. There are. Um, but I kind of put these ones as the kind of holy trinity or the unholy trinity of insulin resistance. But we would tell someone, control your stress. And they would say, well, great, doc, how am I going to do that? Uh, you know, it, it's a little difficult. Stress is one of those difficult things to truly wrap your head around. But even still, you'd mentioned like meditation and quiet. I whole, wholly agree with that. Um, but even still, it's a little difficult to fully manage stress. Same with inflammation. We would say lower your inflammation. They'd say, well, how do I do that? You know, we'd have to find out what's the, what are the stimuli that are inducing right. that increase in that immune uh, level. But if we say control your insulin, easy easy. <clears throat> that is a lever we can grab with both hands and immediately start to pull down just yes. through time-restricted eating and intermittent fasting and by just managing macronutrients and, and altering that ratio, you know, focusing more on the foods that have the lower effect on insulin, like in the fat and protein and controlling the starchiest of the carbohydrates or the most sugary. Now, neither you nor I are declaring war on carbohydrates. And I'd hate for someone to leave this talk, leave this discussion thinking we are, we're not, you know, neither of us is advocating a carnivore diet, but we are no. certainly, my view is <clears throat> don't get your carbohydrates from bags and boxes with barcodes. I love that. Yeah, I love alliteration. So I'm glad you appreciate it. Bags and boxes so, and barcodes. All right, people, good. Yeah, but that's where people get it wrong, right? They're, 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 they're thinking uh, I need to, they have a back, a box of crackers or a bag of chips or a box of cereal. No, go eat fruits and vegetables. Eat them. I'm, I'm an advocate of fruits and vegetables. Yeah. Eat them. But don't drink them and don't get them in processed foods, yeah. like bags, boxes, yeah. and bark. My, my, my joke is I always say carbohydrates are the single most important food for health and longevity. Right? And what I mean by that is that plants are carbohydrates. Broccoli is a carbohydrate. <laughs> you know, asparagus yep. Yep. is a carbohydrate. <laughs> 
those are the ones you want to eat, not the ones that come from a factory or, or from uh, you know some processed ingredients that you're mentioning. Well, bags, bags and boxes, boxes and barcodes. Boxes. What I, I'd like to sort of go into now is an understanding of some of the challenges and controversies around fat. Uh, I wrote a book called Eat Fat, Get Thin, where we talked a lot about this, but you know, there's still a sense that your cholesterol is a big problem, that saturated fat is the devil, and that we should not be eating it. Um, butter, cream, coconut mm -hmm. oil, uh, animal food, saturated fat. Um, talk to us about the biology of what happens when we increase fat and why, why it doesn't work in the same way we think. And also, if you can, speak to the heterogeneity in the population because there's subsets of people who do great with high saturated fat diets and those who don't. And I'm just going to give you a quick scenario of that. And, and then you can kind of riff on how we start to think about it. I had a woman who was about, you know, late, late forties, a uh, woman who was struggling with her weight, uh, inflamed, trying to do good. She exercised, she ate pretty healthy. She wasn't, you know, off the rails with her eating. Uh, her triglycerides were three, 400 or cholesterol was 300 or HDL was like, 30, I mean, which is terrible numbers, you know, which is classic of prediabetes, insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, look, you know, you've tried a lot of things. Let's just try a ketogenic diet and see what happens. You know, no harm, no foul. She did it and it was remarkable. Her, her, not only did she lose 20 pounds like that, but her levels of inflammation came down, her triglycerides dropped two, 300 points, her HDL went up 30 points, which you never see. Her total cholesterol dropped 100 points by eating butter and coconut oil. Yeah, and yet yeah. another, another guy was a very thin fit mid fifties guy who was a really aggressive bicycle rider. He rode 30, 50 miles a day. Uh, and he decided he wanted to try it for performance reasons, not to lose weight. And his numbers went completely opposite. He got very high levels of cholesterol, very high levels of small particles. It just, it was just remarkable to see the difference. And I, it sort of woke me up to the fact that there isn't a one-size-fits-all regards to this. So with that framework, take us down an understanding of, you know, if we are going to be reducing our carbohydrates, starchy, sugary carbohydrates, and we're going to be increasing our fats, how do we do that? And what's the role of saturated fat? And should we be worried? And how does it work? Yeah. Yeah. The great question. So my postdoctoral work um, really was seminal in that it scrutinized the degree to which fatty acids <clears throat> themselves can contribute to insulin resistance. And this is a conversation that I'm passionate about because so many people start beating this drum of saturated fats and use it as evidence against animal products because animal products do contain saturated fats invariably. Now, they're never completely saturated fat, and that's important. There's a mix of saturated mono and polyunsaturated fats. And now, what these and by the way, all saturated did, fats the, aren't the same. There's like ten or twelve different saturated fats, so they're not like. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's 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 dozens of them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so sat, I'm a huge advocate of, of of a full spectrum of fats, namely of saturated fats, even long chain, which we get a lot of medium chain and then short chain. But um, putting that to the side, um, there it, when you incubate a cell, if you have a cell culture, whether it is muscle cells, liver cells, neurons, um, uh, fat cells. And if you incubate those fat cells with palmitic acid, which is the prevalent saturated fat in the human body, certainly in circulation, palmitate, mm. or the 16-carbon mm. saturated fat, mm. when you incubate cells with palmitate, um, they, or, or stearic acid even, 18, um, 18 carbons, they will become insulin resistant. 
Um, and, and so you treat them with the fats, then you put on some insulin a little later and then measure, then you take all the cells and measure what insulin did and it is compromised. Wow. That doesn't happen when you incubate the cells with monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fats. They, it will not cause direct cellular insulin resistance. So, so I've done these studies myself. Maybe the most cited study of mine I've ever done was this exact um, series of studies. Mm -hmm. So, and the same thing happens in rodents. When you infuse the rodent with fat, when you're infusing it directly IV, the saturated fat will cause insulin resistance, but the monounsaturated, like olive oil, for example, doesn't. So there is a direct effect of saturated fats at the cell to cause insulin resistance. And this is all, once you actually get into the cell itself, it's because of how these fats will induce the accumulation of another molecule called ceramides. And if yeah. anyone has ever heard ceramides in the audience, they might be thinking of it as like in lotions or shampoos and stuff. But, but it, it is a slightly different version of it. But saturated fats will induce the accumulation of these molecules called ceramides within a cell. And then ceramides will directly prevent insulin, the insulin biochemical pathway from doing its job. It, it directly antagonizes what insulin is trying to do. So that's the actual where the rubber meets the road molecular mediator. So now to zoom back out to the level of the whole body, some people look at those studies, even possibly my own, and will use that as evidence against saturated fat. And they will say, see, saturated fat causes insulin resistance, but it doesn't work. When you actually go to the whole body and look at the consumption of fat, this is the paradox is the vast majority, overwhelming majority of saturated fat in our blood is palmitate. But it's not from the diet. It comes from the liver. The yeah. liver is the primary source of saturated fats that are circulating in the blood. That when yes. we eat Ooh. saturated fats, they're packaged into the chylomicron. And there can be some depositing of that throughout the body. But it goes to the liver. And then the liver will repackage all that fat. And almost always, the, short, the saturated fats will have two things happen to them. They get elongated by two carbons. So you'll take that 16 carbon. Palmitate, which is the yeah. most prevalent saturated fat. We take that 16 carbon, we make it into an 18 carbon, and then we desaturate it. There are these two steps. And so we end up taking the palmitate in the diet and turning it into oleic acid or the primary olive fat oil. olive oil. <laughs> and that is the primary fat that is stored in every single person's fat cells. So, 18 so, basically, so, basically, so basically your liver makes olive oil. <laughs> no, no, no. So the fat cells turn it into olive oil, well, but well, the, the liver makes palmitate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we eat saturated fats, the, the body will turn it into olive oil, basically. But when the liver is making fat, it makes saturated fats. And so that this is why you can take someone and put them on a, a, a ketogenic diet, low carb, high fat, and they could be eating three times more saturated fat than they were before than the other group, than the than the low fat, high carb group. Three times more saturated fat. And yet the actual composition of fatty acids in their lipoproteins in their blood is much less saturated. So the actual amount of saturated fat circulating in their blood is much lower than it is if someone is eating a diet that is spiking their insulin. Because most of the saturated fat in the blood, which is what's coming to the cells throughout the body, um, you know, the phenomenon that I mentioned a moment ago, most of that saturated fat is coming from the liver. And the liver makes saturated fat when insulin is up. This is a process called lipogenesis and palmitate. Lipogenesis. Yep. Lipogenesis. Yep. And insulin is what turns that on. And that's the paradox here really to put a kind and of fine what point. what turns on insulin? 
Starchy, refined carbs. Yeah. Yes, so sugar these, these... and starch, right. Okay, well, yep, let me just recap right. so for a more... second. So what you're yeah, saying please. is that if you eat saturated fat in your diet from animal protein or dairy or coconut oil, it gets mm -hmm. turned into olive oil in your fat cell. <laughs> That's right. If you actually eat sugar and starch, it turns on the fat production factory in your liver to make saturated fat. That's so right. So you make it's saturated fat that's coming from eating sugar. People don't get this connection. They think, oh, sugar is sugar. How does it turn to fat? Yep. But there's a mechanism by which these sugars cause the production of saturated fat in your blood, which is what's causing a lot of the problem. Yeah, and it's a one-two punch. Absolutely. It's a, it ends up being a one-two punch where these, these starchy, sugary carbs will both act as the skeleton you know, the liver will take those carbons and rearrange them to create a saturated fat. And at the same time, the starchy sugary carbs are increasing insulin, which is what's, the, which is what's driving the signal. That's the signal to tell the liver to do that in the first place, because the liver will not make fat out of carbs unless insulin is elevated. It is antithetical. It is impossible for the liver to do because like every cell in the body, insulin tells the liver what to do with the energy that it has available. And when insulin is up, one of the things it wants the liver to do is turn the carbs into, turn the glucose, those carbons into fat. And the only fat the liver is making and, and packaging and releasing is palmitate, that saturated mm -hmm, fat. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. So uh, I want to, I want to drill down a little bit into the, the take homes. And I just, I sort of want to recap a little bit. And then I want to ask you what, what we can do to fix this, because it seems to me that what you're saying is that this whole host of chronic diseases is, is driven by or affected by this phenomena of insulin resistance. And it's the yeah. biggest scourge causing 88% of Americans to have poor metabolic health. Second is- And 90% of people, and 90% of people with COVID to have it so bad they have to go to the hospital. That's right, that's right. And the second thing is that we, we understand that the way in which insulin resistance is controlled is through primarily diet. And, and I want to go through a few of the other factors too, but primarily diet. And it's primarily the starch in our sugar, which is enormous in this country. It's 60, 70% of our diet. It's usually in the form of flour and hidden sugars in our diet or added sugars, about 152 pounds of sugar and 133 pounds of flour. Uh, recently, according to the USDA data, you know, that's almost a pound a day of sugar and flour per person per day. It's staggering, it's staggering which our yeah, human yeah. biology never, never was exposed to, right? We no, see 22 no. teaspoons a year if we found some berries or honey. Now it's 22 teaspoons per day for the average adult and about 35 for a kid. And, and three, um, that, that by changing the quality of our diet, in other words, reducing starchy refined carbs and increasing good fats, or maybe even saturated fat, we can actually... Mm -hmm stop this process, which is underlying everything that goes wrong with us, at least to aging. And that, um, and that there's some um, heterogeneity in the population, but we need to figure out one, how to diagnose it. I want to talk about that. Two, then how to treat it. Because if we understand this is the problem, you know, one, what do what people listening need to do to find out if they have this problem? Let's start there. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I aside from the mirror well, jiggle so, test, the jiggle test. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I will, I will try not to be too redundant to what you said, but I would say anyone who has any potential, get your insulin measured. And you'd mentioned some wonderful metrics. I've always said below six. I think you said below five. Um, I, I think that's a brilliant way to do it. <clears throat> now at the same time, insulin, like every hormone has a bit of a rhythm to it. There's a diurnal or circadian rhythm. So it's possible someone would go get their insulin checked and maybe it's, it's 12 or 13 or so. And, and you and I both would say, oh, that's a little high. We need to be a little worried. But it's, it's possible the person has measured it at a peak and that in reality, that give it an hour or two later and it would have gone down to, to five. It, it's possible. So I think it is important to note that there are other things like challenging it in a dynamic glucose test like you'd mentioned. That is the absolute gold standard. Alternatively, and another metric you'd mentioned is looking at lipids because insulin controls the production of fats and the regulation of lipoproteins in the body because lipoproteins are energetic molecules. And so look at the triglyceride to HDL ratio. And if a person has a triglyceride to HDL ratio and it's above 1.5, that's strong evidence that they're insulin resistant. Now, that ratio doesn't hold across all ethnicities. It starts to get a little loose, sure. you know, from Caucasians to Asians to African-Americans or so. But nevertheless, that ratio of 1.5 is generally going to be a pretty good indicator that if you're lower than that, if your triglyceride to HDL ratio is lower, that's a good sign that you're insulin sensitive. Um, the good old fashioned waist to hip ratio or the waist to height ratio, if you measure your waist, like the biggest part around your belly, and if you multiply that by two, if that number is higher than your height, that's a very, very good indicator that you have metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance to be more precise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If your waist circumference times two is less than your height, that's a good sign that you're generally mm -hmm. doing okay. Um, and then one other metric among many is what's on the skin. And there are two things people can look for on their skin, which are, it's almost proof positive of insulin resistance. The first one is skin tags. Those are these little kind of mushroom-like or columns, little stalks of skin. They're not like a flat kind of round mold. They're, they just sort of jut right up and they're small. I bet everyone already knows what I'm talking about. People can yes. get them in their armpits or around their neck if they have a fat fold around their neck. So th those are skin tags. And at the same in the same place, especially around the neck or the armpits, anywhere where skin is rubbing, they can start to develop something called acanthosis nigricans or these patches of skin that are a little darker pigment and they have a kind of um, altered texture, kind of this velvety mm -hmm. kind of texture mm -hmm. to it. Um, but, but that's another, another one. So the, the, the skin, I kind of joke, the skin is the window to the metabolic soul just because like every part of the body, it responds to insulin. And so we start to see these little hints of it. So that's really helpful. You know, I wrote, I wrote a little description of how to look at this in great detail. Um, called How to Work with Your Doctor to Get What You Need. It's available on my website, drhyman.com. It's also available, I think, online. You can just Google it. And I go through all the diagnostic tests to help you identify the ways in which either you have insulin resistance or the consequences of it. And the things that I tend to recommend people do is, like you said, a fasting insulin, super important. The best test is is because the fasting insulin elevation is really the second stage of the problem. The first stage is elevations of insulin after you consume a sugar drink. So that, that's a little bit of a more of a pain in the ass test where you have to drink yep. a sugar drink. It's equivalent of two Coca-Colas and then get your blood tested either 30 minutes after uh, and or, or one and two hours after as well as fasting. 
that's really important. The lipid tests you mentioned are super important. I'm going to just drill down a little bit on that because there's something called an NMR or a cardio IQ test from LabCorp Quest, yep. which look at not just the total numbers of, of like the weight of cholesterol, which is your milligrams per deciliter. Uh, it looks at the particle number and the particle size, which is really important. And so when you have insulin resistance, you could have a perfectly normal cholesterol of 200 or 150, but your triglycerides may be 300, your HDL is 30. Your doctor says, oh, your cholesterol is fine, your LDL is fine. It may not be because you may actually have really dangerous small particles. Also, we look at, yep. you know, like the triglyceride HDL ratios, very important. It's something not really paid attention to much by doctors, but it's more, more predictive than an LDL elevation, more predictive. The most predictive tests are, you know, triglyceride HDL ratio and total to HDL ratio. And the HDL ratio reflects the insulin resistance. So we've always been looking at it, but in, not in the right way. <laughs> We also look at inflammation, which can happen through a CRP. We look at uric acid, which can be elevated, which David Palmerter's uh, book, Your, uh, Drop mm -hmm. Acid, was all about. We, we look at uh, liver function tests, which can be abnormal. We look at male hormones, sex hormones. We look at DHEA and sulfate in women to look at the effect of androgens being produced from the insulin resistance. So we look at a whole host of things, and we can get a pretty good picture of where people are in that spectrum. But the most important, like you said, is looking at the insulin fasting or after a glucose tolerance test. And, and you mentioned the waist-to-hip ratio. That's important. But, you know, when you look at the data on the 88% of Americans who are metabolically unhealthy, only 75% only, right? 75% of us are overweight, yep. three quarters. But, like, what about that other, you know, like, you know, eight, whatever, 8%. Like, a, yep. probably about a quarter of people who are thin also have pre-diabetes. They're what we call skinny yep. fat or thin on the outside, yep. fat on the inside. They're metabolically obese, but normal weight. Um, and that's just because they, they may not gain weight, but they actually, the metabolic consequences are all the same. So we start to look at all these factors and we get a pretty good sense of the problem and where you are in that spectrum. So now that we've established that, you know, what are the top things that we should tell people to do in order to uh, reverse this problem because we know even if you're far down the road, even if you've had this going on for 30, 40, 50 years and you're diabetic on insulin, that you can reverse this process, that you can reverse the damage to your beta cells, that you can increase your insulin sensitivity and you can reverse type 2 diabetes and not only just weight loss. So tell us about what are the top things that people need to do from a diet, lifestyle, medication, supplement point of view in order to actually reverse this problem of insulin resistance? So one of the reasons I was invited to Singapore, specifically for my postdoctoral work, was because of the interest in that part of the world, looking at this disparity or the inequality, rather, with regards yes. to metabolic predisposition and body weight changes. Yes. So for example, in Singapore, there's a tremendous variety of ethnicities, like here in the US too, frankly. Um, but they noted that if you looked at a, a, Chinese, uh, a Chinese ethnicity, kind of the average Singaporean, and compared that with someone of European, like Northern European, like me and you, Caucasian ethnicity, that these were individuals who could both be gaining fat, and yet the Chinese ethnicity man, the man, the Chinese guy, would start to suffer insulin resistance, hypertension, much, much earlier than the Caucasian guy would. He could continue yes. to get fatter and fatter, and only later would he start to experience the metabolic consequences. Yeah. Now, to varying degrees, this can happen across all ethnicities, where you'd noted that you have people who don't really appear to be overweight at all. They have a normal body weight. Much of this can be attributed to how the fat cells are growing. You know, you and I were joking earlier that what you can pinch and jiggle is the fat that you have. <laughs> but you could have people who are both gaining weight and yet 
and they, they look, they're gaining weight. They both gained 20 pounds since they graduated from college yeah. when they were roommates. And yet how mm. they've stored the weight, I don't even mean where, but how they've stored the weight is very different because yeah. fat, fat tissue can grow through two different processes. On one hand, you can have the number of fat cells capped. And that's how most people get fat across every ethnicity. The number of fat cells they have is set after puberty. Once they get to adulthood, their fat cell number is set. And so any pressure for the body to store more fat is primarily through hypertrophy of every individual yes. fat cell. So the fat and the fat grow. cells get to, and that's right, they get to about four or five times bigger than a normal fat cell. In contrast, there are some people, and, and, and Caucasians tend to do this a little more than other ethnicities, where they can continue to make more and more fat. So the fat cells will get a little big, and then the body just makes more fat cells. That's a process called hyperplasia. So just multiplying the fat cells, basically. That's the difference, because if you have small fat cells, even if you have a lot of them, they're very insulin sensitive and they're anti-inflammatory, literally secreting proteins that are anti-inflammatory. In contrast, when fat cells start to hypertrophy, two terrible things happen. One, they become insulin resistant to try to mm. prevent their own growth. They're basically telling insulin, insulin, you want me to keep growing? I can't grow anymore, so I have to become resistant to you. And so the fat cell starts leaking free fatty acids into the blood. At the same time, as the fat cell is getting so big, they're pushing each other further and further away from capillaries from the blood. And thus they become hypoxic or a little oxygen deficient. And so they start releasing pro-inflammatory proteins, a whole, a whole catalog of them, because mm. some of those pro-inflammatory proteins will increase blood flow. They'll try to increase the production of new capillaries. So that is part of what happens across people. Even though their body weight may be normal, they might not be in any category that would be problematic with waist-to-hip ratio mm, or waist-to-height mm. ratio, but mm. they have more hypertrophic fat cells than someone else does. And hypertrophic fat cells are insulin-resistant and pro-inflammatory. When you become metabolically mm. flexible, uh, you're able to derive all this energy from your stored body fat. And then a, an amazing thing happens, which is the liver... Um, when you when you withhold carbohydrate, with, which becomes glucose, eventually through the digestive process, when you withhold carbohydrate, and, and just to be clear for people, when you say carbohydrate, you mean refined starchy carbs. You don't mean broccoli, right? Um, I I okay. So we can make that distinction. I do. Rem I mean all carbohydrates, but I'm going to put an, a big asterisk by broccoli and say that when you when you go keto, you can eat as much vegetables as you want. That's right. Okay, so That's green right. leafy vegetables. And they're broccoli. all carbohydrates. So you're they're talking about the refined But they're locked in a fibrous matrix. So what we're talking about is, is how accessible is the amount of sugar that, or the carbohydrate that you take in real time to the body. And if it's made less accessible because it's locked in a fibrous matrix, as in the case of broccoli, or a that's fine. Or any vegetable. Any vegetable. I mean, but, you know, for picking on my favorite vegetable. Um, so you... You not only become good at burning fat, but then the body starts to, you, you create these ketones in the absence of glucose. And people will typically th say, well, you know, my, I'm feeling woozy because my blood sugar's low. My brain isn't working because my blood sugar's low. That's why they feel like they need to have a meal. That's why they feel like they need to have a snack um, because they get, you know, they have this, these wild blood sugar swings throughout the day because they've been so dependent on a regular supply of carbohydrate yeah. to keep their glucose up. Well, when you, when you, when you cease doing that for some length of time, the body gets wise and the brain goes, well, look, I, I know how to burn ketones. I just haven't done it for a long time. So the brain becomes quite adept at, at deriving energy from ketones. The, ketones yeah, the, whole, the whole theory that, you know, you need glucose to fuel your brain, that's a false? That's, co that's correct. You don't need, like one of the things that it's become a kind of a. Because it's supposed a, to use 25% of all the glucose, right? 
25% of your energy. Uh, so not right. That's different that's, than what I learned in different. medical school. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, you're saying that's no. wrong. No. So, so the brain. Let me put it one way, to, which is that there is no dietary requirement for carbohydrate in human nutrition. Yes. There so is, you should you should just unpack that because there are essential amino acids with yes. protein. There yeah. are essential fatty, fatty acids, acids yeah. from fat, but there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate, and we don't need them. Correct. Now, we don't need them, and I'm not suggesting that, that we should never consume them, but, but, but the reality is we don't need them because we have this elaborate and elegant mechanism that takes stored body fat and, in the absence of any food, allows us to live for five, six, seven days, not just survive, but thrive and be mentally alert and to be willing and able to hunt for the f source of food. Because remember, throughout most of human history, we didn't have three square meals a day. We had food, and then we didn't have food. And so the design of the system, and again, this, this elegant system, phase one of the system says the brain, when it comes across food, you got to overeat um, because you don't know where the next source of food is going to be. And so when you overeat, uh, you take the excess amount of energy that is in the food and you store it as fuel that you get to carry around on your body. That's By the way, conveniently located right over the center of gravity. The yeah. belly, the butt, the hips, the thighs. It's, it's such an elegant system that we would be able to, to, to carry this fuel with us for long periods of time and, and not worry about, oh, my God, it's noon and I'm going to get hangry because there, there's no food around or there's, right, no, right. there's no deli nearby. have the ability there's to no use that truck. fat for energy. You just you'd use that fat for energy, and, and that's how the system's designed. So, unfortunately, we get to today where we've lost the ability to – so we're very good at storing fat, and we still are, are wired to overeat. But because I mean, yeah, there's like 200 genes that protect us from starvation, yeah, but none that help us deal with abundance and excess. It, so it's an artifact of civilization. So we kind of have to override that with our cognition. Um, but one way to do that again is to use a ketogenic way of eating for some period of time. Again, not necessarily for the rest of your life. So what is keto? Define keto. So keto to me is cutting is cutting carbs back to uh, 50 grams a day or less. Um, and that Which is, is what is 50 grams in terms of a food? Uh, so like a bagel? Yeah, pretty much like a, ba a bagel with some jam on it and you're already over the top. You know, uh, or any, like if, if you got rid of bread, pasta, cereal, uh, rice, cookies, candies, cakes, sweetened beverages, sweetened drinks, and all you had was, oh my gosh, real food, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cauliflower, uh, salads, you would be fine. You would be within that 50 You'd be hard pressed. Could to you have 50. grains and beans? No, so you can't. You don't have grains and beans on a keto on a on a true keto okay. diet. Now we'll and talk fruit? about we'll talk about what pedo looks like, <laughs> pedo <laughs> or, okay. or paleo keto or 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 uh, what are we going to call it? Uh, ke uh, you know your your pegan version of keto. What's it going to be? Uh, ke Keegan. Keegan, okay, Keegan. All it's right. a Keegan diet. So it's like a keto vegan. Yeah, I have yeah. a friend who's a keto vegan. Yeah, yeah. So it can, you can do it for sure. It takes you know it takes some some adherence to this. At the end of a couple of weeks, though, um, you have shifted your metabolism to one of greater efficiency and um, and and. So it and, takes like three three weeks to adapt yeah, to it. Yeah, you need to make sure you have enough. Fluids and sodium yes. and magnesium, because otherwise you feel the keto flu. Yeah, yeah. Which and they, some people still get the keto flu. It's it's, but it's not like the flu. It's just you feel just, achy and tired. And that's crappy. your brain going. Where's my glucose, dude? Right. And until the brain 
kicks in and says, wow, these ketones are amazing. Um, the liver can make up to 750 calories a day worth of ketones. Wow. Like, chew on that for a second. That's unbelievable, right? So when you, when you, when you look at how we're designed for survival, um, if you look at, at... I mean, not from diet, but just from your fat stores. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, because, and, and, you know, we, we have this stored body fat. And when we cut off, just theoretically, if, like, say you do a fast, which we can talk about what that looks like, but you do a five-day fast, you become a closed loop. It's amazing that you, that you, that the body takes fat out of storage, combusts some of it in the muscles to get you through your day. And people who do five-day fast, do they, they work out, they'll, they'll exercise, not, you know, hard, heavy, but, so you combust some of that fat in the muscles, some of that fat, um, you know, as you take that, those triglycerides and you strip out the the glycerol becomes the backbone to make enough glucose through gluconeogenesis to supply whatever uh, amount of brain cells do require some glucose. It's not a big number. It might be 40, 50 grams a day. Um, the liver makes ketones. The brain uh, thrives on ketones. The brain prefers ketones. Yeah, the brain does way better on yeah. fat than on sugar. Well, on ketones, uh, yeah, because the brain it doesn't burn fat, but it burns ketones. Ketones, ketones are derived from fat. Are derived from fat. So you have this substrate, this fatty, this fat substance uh, that, that, that then can become uh, combusted by itself as fat. Can be, can, part of it can be used to actually make uh, glucose if, if needed. That's why you don't have an external need for, for carbohydrate and glucose. And then you can make up to 750 calories a day worth of, worth of ketones. Now, one of the one of the best things that happens in this scenario is that, again, epigenetics at work turns on genes that cause the body to spare amino acids and spare protein. So as, whereas normally on a day-to-day basis, you might eat a big meal and you might have more you know, protein than you need, and then your body has to kind of go through this work to deaminate it and pee it out because it's too much. You don't need that much. Um, and so when you become this, this closed loop, this closed system, um, the only reason you need the amino acids are for structural, for repair, for building and, and Not repairing to make things. Sugar. You don't want to combust. So people have a false idea about you know keto that it's all like steak and bacon and cream and all yeah. this stuff. It's not necessarily that. No, um, in fact, uh, you can eat too much in the way of well, I mean, a lot of people who f- first come to keto do so because they I heard that I can eat forty five hundred calories a day and not gain weight, you know, and I'm like, well. Yeah, some of the science shows that, but that's horrible because bad idea. <laughs> that's a bad idea because, first of all, if you want to burn off your stored body fat, eating 4,500 calories a day will never tap into your stored body fat. That's just, you know, that's just trying to prime the pump with this external source of fuel that, that's fat that's circulating through your, through your bloodstream. And, and, and that amount of calories, because you're not generating insulin, which is a, which is a nutrient storage hormone, um, the, the, the nutrients have nowhere to go. The body has to figure out, how, how do I burn this stuff off? I can't yeah. store it as fat. Um, so the body you know, undergoes this, you know, th- this thermogenic, you know, high heat kind of thing. And, and uh, Well, that's so powerful because people don't understand that, that if you don't have insulin, which is only produced by eating carbohydrates or protein, can also increase yeah. insulin. If you don't have insulin, you can't gain weight. Yeah. So if you're a type 1 diabetic... The classic symptoms are polyphagia, meaning you eat everything in yeah, sight and can't gain, and you lose weight. Yeah. yeah. So they could eat ten thousand calories a day yeah. and lose weight because they have no insulin, which is required to store 
the Correct. fat on your body. Correct. So the best way to get your insulin down is to cut out the starchy carbs mm -hmm. and to eat more Re Reasonable fat. amounts of protein. And more fat and reasonable amounts of protein. Yeah. And so, so you don't make it up with, you know, you don't make the calories up with ex extra amounts of protein. Yeah. So 20%. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, I, I, I prefer to, to deal with hard numbers. Like what's a good number for protein? Um, maybe it's 75 grams a day for a man as a minimum number. And maybe it doesn't exceed 120. And yeah. it, it, within a range there, you're going to be fine. And then um, because the body is so efficient, again, at, at, at uh, conserving amino acids, protein, um, that it doesn't even matter meal to meal or day to day. It might be on a four day cycle. If you get if you get three hundred grams of protein in a four day cycle, you're good because yeah. it'll just it'll just you know figure out with the different various protein sinks that we have in the body how to how to keep it and not uh, you know pee it out. Yeah. Um, so back to this closed loop that I'm talking about. So you're, you're combusting fat in the muscles. You're um, you're making a little bit of, of uh, glucose through gluconeogenesis. You're making ketones. Uh, now we we figure out that you don't really need that many calories to get through a day. Mm. Like we assume if we do that math that's on online, you know, you plug in your number and your height and your you know your your weight or whatever and your activity level from one to five, and you come up with some number. Oh, it says I can have twenty seven hundred calories a day or thirty two hundred calories a day for maintenance. No bearing whatsoever on reality. Um, we probably if you if again if you do the math, if we uh, for long periods of time, if we say that uh, protein, protein shouldn't even have a calorie assigned to it. It's like, it's it's structural. You don't burn protein, so why would you even assign a value of four calories per gram to protein? Right, but it can turn into sugar. It can if you eat excess it, amounts. It, right? it can. So you know, and I guess if you if you burn it in a bomb caloriner, you know, you get you get some amount of thermic effect. So how, how do how do you know if you're doing a ketogenic diet properly? Well, the main thing is, can you go um, a meal or two, skip a meal or two, and just feel feel just fine? And if you can, you're... it cuts hungry hunger. So when yeah. you have ketones, it cuts your hunger. The, the the number one benefit from all of this is getting control of hunger, appetite, and cravings. Yeah, that's what everyone reports when they when they finally hit that keto zone. They go, so it's not bad willpower that people want to crave and eat over other food? No, it's, it's just biology, right? It's biology. It is, it's absolutely biology. And people people come to this point pretty quickly where they go, Jesus, Mark, you know, three meals a day is just too damn much food. Mm -hmm. I just don't feel hungry. I, I feel like I'm overeating at three meals yeah. a day. And so typically what they do is they skip breakfast. They wake up in the morning. I have a cup of coffee. I go about my day. I do a hard workout. I'm like, not only do I not need to eat i don't feel compelled to eat i don't want to eat um and i might have my first meal at one o'clock or it's like time restricted eating it's what it is yeah and so then then you get to the point where you're eating maybe two meals a day and then from there it's like even those two meals feel like like if i have two regular what would have been in the old days regular meals now it's like i'm gonna have lunch kind of a smaller lunch because i want to enjoy a regular dinner if i have a regular lunch then i won't be hungry for dinner it's it's amazing how hunger dissipates in it this, is yeah in this context but you don't get super skinny i mean you you look good right i, I mean i work to keep my weight on. although i, although I notice mark is i actually have um a problem if i don't have things like sweet potatoes or some yeah like black rice something like that i will lose too much weight yeah do you lift weights I do. I started. Okay. Yeah. Lifting weights is what causes you to keep muscle on. If you don't lift weights, especially as you get older, 
Yeah. Like when you get to be 45, you'll see what I'm talking about. But uh, I'm 60. <laughs> I, I passed that mark long uh, ago. I'm just messing with you. But, but, <laughs> but I'm you know, biologically you, but, 39 because yeah, yeah, I did as, my telomeres. As you get older, uh, the importance of lean tissue becomes more and more critical. Yeah, muscle and, is the forgotten organ. It's the forgotten. And people think, well, if I'm, if, you know, if I'm jogging in my 50s and 60s and 70s or you know, riding a bike, that that's accomplishing what I need to accomplish. And it's not. It's actually... It's much more important to spend some time in the gym lifting heavy weights, like the heaviest weights you can lift without getting hurt. Yeah. Without getting hurt is a key component. I don't want to... So my trainer tells me I should do like more reps, like I do three sets. Yeah. And I do, you know, it's pretty hard, but it's not like my maximum that I can yeah. do. Uh, sometimes it is, but is that is that the same or is it more better to do heavy how, weights? How many reps do you do? Are we I talking like six or 35? 10, 10 to 12, and yeah, then I do good. three times. That's fine. That's a standard... That's that's that hasn't changed in decades. That's yeah. still and there's no right answer there. There's no magic. It's like whatever you feel. Is good that doing. building enough muscle, or should I do more heavier sure. weights? Sure, I mean, you know, fewer reps. Um, heavier weights and fewer reps builds more um, strength over time. Um, but there's no, I can't tell you that that that's where you need to go. But I give you an example. Um, it's sometimes the type of weights you're doing. So if you're just doing bicep curls, you know, that's you know, for the, for the beach, but that doesn't really uh, impact um, bone density, um, you know, muscle mass throughout. So hex bar deadlifts, you ever do those? Yeah. Yeah. That's the best thing you can do. What about just a regular deadlift? Yeah, they're good, but they're, they're, I'm too concerned with my back. So So I lift heavy with a hex bar deadlift. Oh, really? Yeah. So, but I do it once every week and I do three sets of that. I I keep adding weights until I get- How much do you do? I do up to 300 pounds <gasps> on a, on a, I do one, you know, to two rep max on a, on 300. Oh, one to two. Yeah. Reps. Yeah. I can do 335 on one, but it's too much. I, I wind up taking too long to do it. And I'm afraid I'm, I, again, I don't want to hurt myself. Yeah. So I do, but that's like that one exercise impacts the entire body. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not just what you would see obviously from, from doing the, the weight of, you know, the glutes and the, and the lower back and yeah. the hamstrings and the quads, but you know it's pulling on the shoulder muscles. Like, like my grip strength is sometimes the the thing that gives out more than anything else. Um, but that one exercise then has an effect on uh, the pulse of of uh, growth hormone and testosterone um, through a you know it, it involves so many muscles and including major muscles that then when you go do the pull ups and the push ups and the dips and the squats and, and all the other the lunges, then you get the the impact. Uh, is greater the the effect the muscle building effect is greater because you did that yeah i like um, that i yeah. like that so i should do that first or last or whatever right. but well, that's i mean yeah. if you do it first a lot of times you'll like uh you know you won't have the strength to complete the other stuff so what is the biology of of doing it? you mentioned you, know, you can burn fat but why is that better like what what does it do in terms of longevity what are the what does the science show well um a- as we uh so so Burning sugar is a, uh, in and of itself, uh, a, it produces reactive oxygen species at a greater rate than putting combusting fat through the, the mitochondria. Mm-hmm. So the more energy you can drive through this uh, metabolic pathway that uses the mitochondria, the better off you are. A lot of times people burn sugar in the cytosol of the cell, not even... So, gr- the way I think about it is interesting. So when you eat a lot of sugar calories and starchy calories... It's, it burns dirty in your mitochondria yeah. and it releases a lot of waste products, yeah. which is these reactive oxygen species, species yeah. or oxidative stress or free yeah, radicals yeah, free that radicals, are driving yeah. aging. Yeah. And when you burn 
when you burn ketones, more like hybrid. Yeah. <laughs> like an electric, no, like an electric like, vehicle burns yeah, clean, yeah. right? Like a 93 octane. On yeah, it burns much cleaner. Yeah. Is that true? It's true. I mean, that's yeah. that's the simplest way of, of looking at it. Then there are other nuances to this, which are when you become good at burning fat, then when you skip a meal uh, or when you have this, this very easy to manage compressed eating window, all the good stuff happens when you're not eating. Yeah. So when you're, the longer you can go, and that's why fasting has become the rage, the longer you can go without eating, the more your body says, oh, this is a great time to do some house cleaning. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the term autophagy is thrown out probably too much now. But, but you know, the body does tend to want to clean up uh, and consume damaged uh, proteins so and autophagy and, means like you're literally eating yourself correct. so eating all the waste products eating the waste like pac-man yeah. goes around and cleans correct. up correct and if you and if you never fast you just become this increased collection of garbage uh in your body so the whole three meals three snacks eat late at night night after dinner snack and wake yeah. up eating right away that's a bad idea it's a, not it's a bad idea and what's ironic to me is that even going back 15 years ago in the bodybuilding in the in the weightlifting in the general health community, it, the mantra was, don't go more than two hours without eating. Uh, you bring your Tupperware, you know, little meals with you with, you know, some amount of protein, some amount of carbs, and <laughs> no fat, uh, skinless chicken breast, and, you know, all that stuff. It was, it was a horrible uh, concept, and yet the thought process was, you know, you don't want to cannibalize your muscle tissue, and if you go more than three hours without eating, you'll cannibalize your muscle tissue. Now, all of that was predicated on an assumption that glucose was the primary fuel that we needed. Yeah. When we ran out of glucose, it would cause the brain to go into a, a state of, oh, my God, send a signal to uh, you the, the, the adrenals yeah. to secrete cortisol so we can uh, you know, basically melt some muscle tissue and send some, some amino acids to the liver to become glucose. Exactly. It was a horrible uh, – again, it was all based on the wrong on – on a concept that, that – somehow assumed that glucose was the muscle fuel that we needed and if, if we didn't manage glucose all hell broke loose so now we know that fat is the preferred fuel for human movement and human activity and that ketones are not just a legitimate uh, alternative energy source they're probably a preferred energy source in many mm. cases now as a doctor i i see a lot of patients and i test them and i see the results and what's it's humbling because you can come up with all these great theories but then you see the individual in front of you. And I've had patients I put on a ketogenic diet eating butter and coconut oil all day, and they lose 20, 30 pounds. Their cholesterol comes down 100 points. Their triglycerides drop. Their good cholesterol goes up. Somebody else does that, and all their numbers go terrible. Mm -hmm. And they start getting really bad cholesterol numbers. And and I, I'm one of those guys. If I yep. eat too much of saturated fat, I get in trouble. Yep. And I think, how, how, how do you understand sort of how to personalize this? So... All right, so a couple things. First of all, um, you know, we, we've never had this conversation, so I don't know what your stance is uh, currently on this. But, you know, I've, I've been pushing for 15 years to, um, to take the weight off cholesterol as a bad guy. You know, mm. the cholesterol is not the problem. In the cholesterol. blood or in the diet? Uh, both. But yeah. let's just talk blood cholesterol right now. I don't think cholesterol is a bad guy. It's, it, cholesterol is one of the most important uh, uh, molecules. molecules in the human body. Um, it's integral to life. The body makes 1,300 milligrams a day, whether or not you have any in your diet. Um, and to vilify it and, and spend a trillion dollars for the last 15 years to try and eradicate it in, in humans is absolutely unconscious. Through statin medications. Through statin medications. 
Um, so, and I shared with you before the show. So I just had some blood work done. I'm between 245 and 290 on my total, total. cholesterol. But my HDL is 98. That's the good cholesterol. That's the good cholesterol. Um, you know, and my triglycerides are always below 75, sometimes 45 or 50. My A1C is 4.9, which you know to be. That's your average blood sugar, which yep, is really low. Really low. Uh, fasting insulin is, you know, between 6 and 7. It can be as high as 45 in some people. So all my markers are great, except that if you didn't, if you didn't ascribe to that whole cholesterol theory, you'd go, oh, my God, Mark, we've got to put you on a st-. Everything looks great. By the way, I had a full scan of my carotids and my, all my blood supply to my to my art to, to my you know my coronary arteries, my liver. I mean, they were digging in so deep. I thought, oh my God, they're they're looking to see if I have colon cancer. But they were trying to get to get at my kidney my kidney supply. And they said, like, you, you know, you're clean. You got like the blood supply of a thirty year old. It's clean as can be. Mm-hmm. That's all that counts, Mark. I don't care what my cholesterol numbers are. But aren't some people more at risk though? Some are some with you know hype, uh, but. Again, is lean mass hyperresponder phenomena? Yes, and uh, and and it all I think comes down to. And I'm not a doctor, so you know I'm only giving you my opinion. You can you can opine <laughs> with greater, uh, you know. Um, I, I, guess, know. I guess you have more uh, more Mark. liability for saying it than I do. <laughs> I have no liability as long as I say I'm not a doctor. Um, but um, it's it's inflammation and oxidation that are the mm-hmm. primary culprits here. And so if you if you have an otherwise inflammatory lifestyle, inflammatory diet, we can talk about sugar, we can talk about stress, we can talk about, um, you know, and then we can talk about some pre- familial predisposition. Mm-hmm. Yes, but in general, um, so back to your, your two people, some succeed wildly on the ketogenic diet and some not so much. But the not so much, if you're evaluate, evaluating just on short-term uh, uh, blood markers, I'm not going to say it's not working. I'm just going to say that's, you know, the, if you're keto and you're good at burning fat, you've got to transport the fat somehow to the to the muscle cells. You've got, you know, there, there are a lot of things going on here. Yeah, we just don't know. And we just don't know. Mm. Now, some people having said all of that, some women in particular, are not good responders to keto. It may yeah. be... Who shouldn't be on it. Um, well, so I think pregnant women uh, are probably, you know, you... You just work with some, if you if you want to do this and you insist on doing this, work with somebody who knows knows what they're doing, right? Um, and I wouldn't you know I wouldn't introduce a three year old kid to uh, to a ketogenic diet, right? You know, I do you have, think it's something everybody should be on, or I think at some point in their lives everybody should be on it because it's the human the human experience. So you think cyclical keto? This cyclical idea, keto, yeah. So do I do ever go above the fifty grams of carbs? Oh in my your god, life? I I have. Um, Last night, I'm visiting here in Los Angeles. My daughter is a great chef, and she made a lasagna last night. Like, I'm not going to not eat two servings of that. I mean, <laughs> you know, and it was somebody's birthday, and we had some pie. And, you know, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't sleep as well as I as I would have had I not done that. But I also, like, I'm it's, totally comfortable in, yeah. in so the fact So then you go in and out. In and out. And that's... That's what we historically did. That's exactly. So when we talk about, you know, we're, we're humans... You know, always keto. No, we were. There were periods of time when we were. There was no access to food. You were like automatically. You were obligatory keto when you didn't eat. Yeah. Um, but because you didn't eat processed crap and industrial seed oils that would infect your um, your insulin sensitivity and all these other things, even if you came across a, a treasure trove of bee honey, or it was late in the season and you had a bunch of fruit, um, you know, you'd store it as fat. But then you'd go right back to being keto mm. when when the food supply was cut off. Yeah. And, and, you, you, and, he, and he didn't go, 
you know, as some of these people do, well, you know, whenever I have more than 60 grams or 70 grams of uh, carbs, I get kicked out of keto. I was kicked out of keto means nothing to me. Like, I don't even care what your keto numbers are. So you don't think about measuring it or tracking no, it's, it? No, I think it's a parlor trick. So what will happen is people who are new to keto will go, uh, they'll chase the numbers, right? So they'll say, well, I didn't eat, you know, any, any carbs today, and I just had MCT oil, and I had my, you know, Bulletproof coffee and whatever, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm showing 4.5 millimolar or 6 millimolar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, baby, I'm keto. Well, you're keto. You're producing ketones. But, but one of the things you got to look for is you're just pissing those out. So your body's not, has not become good at using them yet. You'll get there, but right now your liver's going crazy trying to make ketones, and you don't know how to burn them. So once you build the metabolic machinery to burn ketones, and once you build the the, the facility, and it doesn't go away when you have a pie and lasagna. No one, no exactly, exactly. That, so let's talk about that. But once you built that, you spent three weeks, four weeks, you know, building that metabolic machinery. You've you've reset your metabolism to one of metabolic flexibility and metabolic efficiency. Then uh, if you go off the wagon, you know, one meal or eat one day of three hundred grams of carbs. You might even you might feel bad, but you just come right back to to where yeah. you were. You just you, it's it's it doesn't shift all the way back to being a sugar burner. Now, if you did it for three more weeks of just doing sugar, the body would say, "Well, I guess we don't need this expensive machinery uh, lying around burning fat all the time." Now, yeah. I guess we're gonna just go back to burning sugar. Yeah. So we'll we'll let all of these things atrophy. When you get your traditional cholesterol panel done, your traditional lipid panel done, you're they're they're giving you the the LDL cholesterol, the HDL cholesterol, the total cholesterol. And and that's one piece of information like you said, but we're missing a lot of of information there. So the the uh it's really important. I love this analogy of the dirt and dump trucks. So um, dirt and dump trucks. And think of think of all the dump trucks that are going around carrying dirt. And we can make this analogy with cholesterol. Hmm. So think of your cholesterol like the dirt. And the, um, the dump trucks are the particles carrying around your cholesterol. So what we're learning is it's not just the amount of dirt somebody has that's mm. important. Mm. It's the amount of dump trucks that they have mm. carrying around that dirt. Mm. And that the size of the dump trucks are actually really important. And so, so when you get a typical lipid panel done, mm. you know, you're just finding out the amount of dirt that you have and how much of it is LDL and HDL and triglycerides. And that's important. And we, we'll talk about that. But what's even more important or at least as important, right, is the amount of dump trucks you have carrying around that dirt. Mm. And what we're learning is that, or what we've learned, is that the the if you have small dump trucks, so if you have a certain amount of dirt, you could either have a few big dump trucks carrying it around or a lot of small dump trucks carrying it around. Yeah. And what we're learning is that those small dump trucks, if you have too many small dump trucks, that that's actually more concerning, yeah. that they can get into the artery lining more, they can cause more plaque buildup, they can get that, that it can help that cholesterol get oxidized yeah. through oxidative stress. It's much more dangerous. Yeah. So the size of those dump trucks you have carrying around your cholesterol is critically important yeah. and something we look at all the time. I mean, the way I think about it is, and I, another way I kind of look at it is, um, you know, the, the the number you get on your test is the weight of your cholesterol. So it's mm-hmm. milligrams per deciliter. It's just basically the weight. Yep. But it doesn't tell you 
if that cholesterol is made up of a thousand particles or a hundred particles. Right. So you could have a cholesterol of 150 and it could be 5,000 particles or it could be 500 particles yep. of cholesterol. And that makes a huge difference in your risk of heart disease. And huge you can't risk. tell from a regular cholesterol test whether you have a lot of particles or whether they're big particles or small particles. Yep. So I think about it sort of like golf balls and beach balls. You know, beach balls are these big, light, fluffy balls that you can yep. bounce and don't hurt anything. And the golf ball is small, but it hits you in the head and knock you out. Right. And yep. the golf balls are the things that are the small particles that are dangerous that bang up against the arteries and cause the plaque to develop and cause heart attacks. So, so Absolutely. you can't tell that from a regular test. You can have smaller, large LDL, smaller, large HDL, yep. smaller, large triglycerides. And the triglycerides are a little different. It's the big triglycerides that are a problem, not mm -hmm. the small ones. Um, but you can really get a sense from these newer tests what's really going on. Because yes. I've seen people with a cholesterol of 300. Mm -hmm. Their HDLs, which is, sounds terrible, right? Because yep. you're supposed to be under 200. Their LDL might be 150, which sounds yep. terrible because it should be under 70. Your, their HDL is like 110. Yep. So they're really high. They're skinny, they're healthy, they don't have diabetes, high blood pressure, they don't smoke, they're older. Often little old ladies have this kind of cholesterol. Yep. There's no evidence that these people are at risk of heart disease because they have large, light, fluffy particles. They might yep. have no small particles. They yep. might have the perfect size and shape of all their cholesterol markers. And their risk is really low. And I remember talking to uh, a colleague, of, of, well, more of a mentor, Dr. Peter Libby, who's the chief of mm -hmm. cardiovascular medicine at Harvard, who's written the textbook, you know, on heart disease at all, cardiology study. And I said, you know, Peter, I have these patients, these little, little ladies, the cholesterol is 300 and they have this and that. Like, this was like 20 years ago. I'm like, would you treat these people with a statin or a drug? He said, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no evidence that these people are at risk, even though their cholesterol is so abnormal. So you can't just go by the cholesterol test that your doctor does. Right. Right. So you need something called what? Like particle size testing. Um, it, it's telling us about those those things that are carrying around your cholesterol. Yeah. So and LabCorp does NMR. Yep. NMR. Quest does something called CardioIQ, yep. which is similar. And you can ask your doctor for these. And you shouldn't stand for any other test but these tests. And then Absolutely. they tell you so much. So tell us, how do you get uh, a profile that is with these small, dense, dangerous HDL and LDL. Well, you know, it's interesting. So uh, there's there's a lot of lifestyle that impacts the size of your LDL particles, right? The size of those, you know, are they small and dense and dangerous or are they big and fluffy and not so dangerous? I mean, there's a there's always a genetic component, right? There's a genetic component, but then there's our lifestyle. And we oh. know that 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 uh, metabolic syndrome where people are insulin resistant, gaining weight around the belly, they typically have lower HDL, they typically have higher triglycerides, but they also typically have more of these small, dense LDLs, which are more concerning. And so lifestyle makes a huge impact on the, the, the size of those LDL particles. And which part of your lifestyle? What's the biggest thing? The diet. Your diet. What, what, do you, what, what diet causes you to have the dangerous kind of that cholesterol? That sad diet. The standard American diet, right? That's yeah. the one that, that, you know, that full of carbohydrates and sugar and refined and processed yeah. foods yeah. and lots of alcohol and, you know, It's the starch sugars. and sugar mm -hmm. that drives it. And what, what does that do to the body that causes these particles? And, and it actually leads to the high triglycerides, the low HDL, the 
small particles. Right. It's that whole process of insulin resistance, and it results in this really unhealthy pattern. And so, you know, we sometimes get clues of that with a standard lipid panel, right? We sometimes get clues when somebody has a low HDL. That's the one, the HDL is the one you want higher. And for, for men, you want it at least over 40, and for women, at least over 50. Um, and then if that triglycerides are I'm over- I'm like 50 and 60. I'm, I'm, I'm more aggressive than you. Yeah. Well, that's really true. <laughs> like what's but, optimal, right? What's optimal, if you're a guy, right? If your cholesterol is, HDL is 40, probably not optimal. It should be over 50. Right? It really should. It really should. You're right. It's I'm, not optimal. I'm a optimal. tough customer here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the triglycerides, you want at least under 150, or what would you say? What's 70. optimal? There you go for I triglycerides. Mean, so if your, if your triglycerides are over 100, you're, you're definitely flirting with danger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there are, you know, there's some genetics involved. We don't talk about the genetics in a minute, but, but it is usually a sign of increased carbohydrate load. Like yeah. not, and I don't mean broccoli, I mean like flour and sugar. Absolutely. Right. So, so, you know, you can get some sense of if somebody has, is prone to metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance with that. But then the particle size testing also gives us a lot of information. Um, the NMR, for example, gives you something called your insulin resistance score. Yeah. So you can get a sense based on the analysis of the particles of cholesterol that you have, how at risk you are for insulin resistance. So it's yeah. just one more piece of the puzzle. And I see people with a cholesterol of 150. Yep. Who have like 2,000 particles of LDL, which yeah. is, should be under 1,000, who have like 900 particles of small LDL, which should be under mm-hmm. 300 ideally, probably less than 90 is perfect, and you see that often. And yet their doctor, well, your cholesterol is 150, it's fine, yep. you know? And, and so you really can get duped by just looking at the total numbers. If it's 300, it might be fine. If it's 150, it might be highly dangerous to you. Right. And it's not so easy without looking at the specific tests. So it's super important. And so what you mentioned is that insulin resistance is the driver of this, which is prediabetes, yep. metabolic syndrome. And to some degree or another, 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy and mm-hmm. have some degree of this. 50% crazy. have it's prediabetes crazy. or type 2 diabetes. Like every other American has diabetes or prediabetes. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. 75% overweight. And every one of those people is some degree of poor metabolic health. Yep. So if this is true, uh, what else does this diet do that accelerates heart disease? Because we now know that it's not just the cholesterol. Like I said, you could have yes. cholesterol 300 and be fine. Mm-hmm. There's a special ingredient you need in order to cause the heart disease. What is that special ingredient? So it's inflammation yes. and oxidative stress, yes. right? Okay. So inflammation seems to cause everything these days, yeah. from depression to cancer to heart mm-hmm. disease to diabetes to everything else. So uh, what is what is the cause of the inflammation in these patients with insulin resistance? So, so a lot of times, I mean, there's many things, right? But it's our belly fat Mm. because we know that that fat around our belly, when we get insulin resistant, we gain more weight around our belly and we know that visceral fat or, or weight around the belly, the apple shape is more inflammatory. It secretes Mm. all these inflammatory markers and increases inflammation in the body. And Mm. so when people, when they, when we get them to, when they help when they, their weight around their belly goes down. When we get yep. that waist-hip ratio better, that inflammation goes down. So basically what you're saying is, is that fat around your belly is not just holding up your pants, that it's, no, an, it's an immunologically active yeah. organ. Yep. It produces these molecules we call adipose cytokines. You've heard of the mm-hmm. cytokine storm with COVID. Yep. Well, it's that same chronic cytokine storm that's being released from these fat cells in your belly. They're not just average. I mean, you have fat in your legs or your butt. It's not going to do that. 
these fat cells in your belly are super yeah. inflammatory. So then you get the inflammation, which leads to oxidative stress, which then causes what problem with the cholesterol? Right. So when your LDL cholesterol gets oxidized- and what it, is that? Um, think of oxidative stress like excessive free radicals or rusting in the body. But, yeah. you know, there's we're always making free radicals uh, when in many different cellular processes in the body. But when there's too many of them or you don't have enough antioxidants to squelch that oxidate, those, those free radicals. So if your diet's not rich enough in the polyphenols or those phytonutrients or your vegetables, then, then what happens is you get more oxidative stress. And that oxidative stress can 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 shift that LDL cholesterol. And it's that oxidized LDL that's more damaging and more likely to cause plaque buildup and and um, that will lead to heart disease. So it's basically rancid cholesterol yep. in your bloodstream that's the problem mm-hmm. that gets oxidized, which is like you said, rusting or apple turning brown or yeah. your skin wrinkling from too much sun. These are all signs of oxidation. But this happens inside of you and it yep. leads to this inflammatory process, this oxidative stress, and that's what causes the heart disease. And I, you know, some of the interesting studies I've seen, like the Jupiter study, very big trial from Harvard on heart disease. It's fascinating to me that people who had high LDL, but no inflammation, had very low risk. Yes. People had high inflammation, mm-hmm. but kind of okay cholesterol, they were at risk. And those with high cholesterol and high inflammation had the most risk. Yes. So I think we have to be focused on inflammation, what's causing that. And it may, it may be that, you know, the statin drugs, turns out, the, the benefits may not have a lot to do with cholesterol lowering. But they're anti-inflammatory. They may, they're very impact. powerful anti-inflammatory drugs, mm-hmm. which is called a side effect. Yep. But, but it actually works. Now, there's a lot of better ways to get rid of inflammation besides taking statin drugs. Yeah. Uh, and so, so when you're talking about people's cholesterol, you know, how do you decide you know, what to do for each patient? How do you decide from a functional medicine perspective yeah. you know, how to work these patients up to decide whether that should go on a drug or whether you just do lifestyle? How do you, how do you figure that yeah, out? I mean, it's, it is a complex uh, process, right? Where we're taking a really detailed history and we're looking at more than just those numbers. We're looking at what are their markers of oxidative stress? You know, we can measure those. We mm-hmm. can measure oxidized LDL. We can measure 8-hydroxydeoxyguanosine and lipid peroxides all of these biomarkers that give us a sense of, is there oxidative stress? And, and by the way, these kinds of tests are not things you'll typically get at your regular doctor. You know, at the mm-hmm. Ultra Wellness Center here in Lenox, Massachusetts, we we do functional medicine, which takes a deeper dive into yep. the root causes, into these diagnostic tests, which are not available usually through your traditional doctor. They may not be interested in or know what to do or how to interpret even fasting insulin, which they don't even do. So we, we really are excited to help people figure out how to look at their risk and design a strategy that's personalized for them using functional medicine. And we see people from all over the world at the Ultra Wellness Center doing like Zoom consults now. So it's pretty easy to get get access. You know, and it's, it's fascinating because there's so many pieces to the puzzle. And so when you find somebody with high oxidative stress, you ask that question, why? Why is there high oxidative stress? Is it their poor diet? Is it, is it you know, inflammation? Is, is it, it their, their microbiome? Is it their microbiome? You know, is it a toxin? Heavy metals. Heavy metals, like a toxin or some Pollution. other- Yes. You know, all the smoke, that the wildfires in California, mm-hmm. that increases risk of cardiovascular yeah. disease. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's really important to think about all the different things that can lead to oxidative stress and inflammation, and then try to tease out what is it for that individual person that we need to focus on. So I think that's important for, for some people and a lot of Americans, there's so much that's lifestyle related, mm. right? But for some people, their lifestyle is great and it's more... 
um, it's more toxin related that we really need mm. to work on that. Or, mm. or like you mentioned, the microbiome is, a, is, a, is an area that's fascinating. And we're learning so much about how it influences inflammation in the body. Yeah. You know, um, microbiome in your gut as well as microbiome in your mouth, right? And gingivitis and how much that we know, we've known for years that that impacts risk of heart disease mm. because of its infl inflammatory properties. So those are important things that we need to really investigate and look at. Yeah, so true. You know, I'm just thinking about, you know, how, how we work with these patients. So we look at all these diagnostic tests that may not be looked at. We look at their overall cardiovascular risk, their family history. We may look at diagnostic tests. We may send them for a heart scan, look at calcium, yep. broad ultrasound, look at particle size, look at inflammation markers, oxidative stress markers, the microbiome, yep. heavy metals. We might look at other factors like homocysteine, which looks at yep. the vitamin status. We look at lipoprotein A and a bunch of other factors that give us a more rounded picture of yep. what's going on. So we're not just focused like a laser on cholesterol. And, and the reason it seems to me that we are so hyper-focused on cholesterol is we have a good drug to treat it, right? <laughs> so it's, it's all pharmaceutical driven, whereas, whereas yes. when you look at the data, two-thirds of all people entering into an emergency room with a heart attack have either uh, pre-diabetes or diabetes, and most of them are undiagnosed. Right. So, so when, when you say- So if two-thirds of heart attacks are from sugar, not cholesterol issues- and we're just focusing on cholesterol. It seems like we're missing the mark here. We often are. And we're saying, okay, this is high. I mean, so many people come back with, you know, high on their on their lab work. And it doesn't necessarily, like you said, mean it's anything to be concerned about. Right. Um, and then there's so many people who come back without that H, that high level. And, they're, and they do need to be yes. concerned. Statins have a role. But uh, let's talk about the statins for a minute because it's very controversial. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, like any drug... There are benefits, there are risks, there are side effects, and there's the right patient for the job, mm -hmm. right? So how do, you, how do you come to sort of decide what you should do with a patient? Yeah, I mean, you really want to get a good detailed family history. You know, I think that there are some people who are at very high risk of, of vascular disease. And, and for people who have a strong family history, which means that... Uh, if you have a first degree relative, which would be a parent or a sibling mm. who has had an early heart attack. So for yeah. a man less than 55 or a woman less than 65, that means mm. they've had heart, diagnosed heart disease because of plaque yeah. at an early age. Yeah. You know, that those people who have that type of family history need to be more careful. Or you know? were they smokers? Were they very overweight? Absolutely. Did they have diabetes? Like what are the other factors? So I always look at that as well because- You have to. I remember my grandfather, you know, everybody in his family, like I think he had nine siblings, everybody had heart attacks in their 50s. Mm -hmm. You know, they all had bypasses, heart attacks, uh, and they weren't like significantly overweight. But they were pretty high risk uh, as a family, and he was deaf, so he couldn't hear. So he really, he really couldn't get a, a job like a white collar job. So he had a, a blue collar job, which was basically loading New York Times big bundles of New York Times onto the trucks from the conveyor belt. So he was constantly working out all day long and was very, very strong and healthy. And every night he would go out in Queens and he would walk down the street and feed all the alley cats. So he walked every night after dinner, which we now know is a very good way to improve your health. And he he didn't really get heart disease until his 80s, right? right? And they all got it in their 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, and, and his diet wasn't the best, right? But still, even with simple, simple lifestyle things, it can make a big difference. 
Absolutely. So right. So you you bring up a great point that genetics and family history is just one piece of the puzzle. It's not what makes all you know make us makes us make all the decisions in the world, right. but we take that into account yeah. as well as all their other risk factors, like you mentioned, like type two diabetes and are they a smoker and you know. So we really have to pay attention to all of those lifestyle and high factors. blood pressure. You know. A lot of high blood mm-hmm. pressure is, is a big factor in heart disease. But again, high blood pressure is usually caused by the same thing, which is insulin resistance. So, so often. sleep apnea. Yeah, it's very, very common. Yep. Uh, and, and you know, I just sort of recall a patient. I'd love to hear any cases you're, you're, you'd like to share. But I just remembered a patient I saw was about 50 years old. And he came to see me. And he, he had a little bit of belly fat, maybe 20 pounds overweight. He'd had a heart attack, had a stent, uh, and was freaked out, you know, at 50 yeah. years old to have his heart be at risk like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was on a pile of medications when I saw him. He was on a statin, a beta blocker, blood thinner, you know, calcium, the whole, the whole, the whole cocktail, you know, blood pressure pills, you know, pretty much everything. Um, and I said, well, listen, are you willing to sort of make some changes? And so we totally revamped his diet. We got rid of all the junk out of his diet, very, very low sugar starch diet, lots of good fats, mm-hmm. uh, lots of fiber, got him on some basic supplements, you know, B vitamins, folate, uh, and, and also fish oil, um, got him on an exercise program. And over the course of a year, you know, he lost, I think, I don't know, maybe he was more of a weight. I think he lost almost 50 pounds. He he was able to normalize all of his numbers and his blood sugar was high, yep. his insulin was high. He wasn't quote diabetic, but he was pre-diabetic, mm-hmm. and no one—they they completely missed it. Yep. Like they, I mean, it's just staggering to me that after thirty years, that I've been doing this, that the yeah. literature has been there, that doctors don't check for pre-diabetes on a regular basis, which affects uh, basically one out of every two Americans yes. or more. And 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 so you check that by measuring insulin, A1C, a glucose tolerance test with insulin. There's ways to look at it, and and look at particle number, particle yep. size. And, and he lost the weight and he was able to reverse all of his numbers and he was able to get off all his medication, including statins. And his numbers were better off the statins than they were on it mm-hmm. by fixing all these lifestyle factors. And right. he's been heart attack free for the last 20 years. Woo-hoo. So I just, yeah, I think we, we are so stuck in this paradigm of treating the symptom, the cholesterol, yeah. instead of the cause. Absolutely, that's critical. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. One of the best ways you can support this podcast is by leaving us a rating and review below. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Hyman. Thanks for tuning into The Doctor's Pharmacy. I hope you're loving this podcast. It's one of my favorite things to do and introducing you to all the experts that I know and I love and that I've learned so much from. And I wanna tell you about something else I'm doing which is called Mark's Picks. It's my weekly newsletter and in it I share my favorite stuff from foods to supplements to gadgets to tools to enhance your health. It's all the cool stuff that I use and that my team uses to optimize and enhance our health. And I'd love you to sign up for the weekly newsletter. I'll only send it to you once a week on Fridays. Nothing else, I promise. And all you have to do is go to drhyman.com forward slash picks to sign up. That's drhyman.com forward slash picks, P-I-C-K-S, and sign up for the newsletter and I'll share with you my favorite stuff that I use to enhance my health and get healthier and better and live younger, longer. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. 
This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.